Welcome everyone to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Edgensen. And I'm Finarni Edgensen. We're the hosts of this book talk. Now today is a very special day um, because this is our one year anniversary book talk. So tomorrow is officially one year um, from when we started this series. So we started as a response to the corona um, shutdowns that happened across academia um, here in Norway. Um, we decided that we really needed to hold the environmental humanities community together. And we wanted a way for authors of these wonderful books that are coming out in environmental humanities to have a chance to share them uh, with other people, because we knew that all the book talks, um, all the conferences, all the events that you normally would have had in person were all of a sudden not going to be there. Um, so we started this um, series with uh, David Ferrier talking about footprints the week after Norway had been shut down. Yeah, so now we've done 40, this is number 41, and you can find them all archived on our website, uh, the video recordings for every single one. So we're just so excited and happy to be able to continue this series, because what we've really seen is how much it has brought the community together, how having authors be able to share their work is so interesting and exciting for us. Um, and we hope for all of you uh, to get to hear their own take on their books and to be able to answer all of your questions about it. So we hope that you'll continue to join us. We do intend to continue running the series. We have a schedule out through mid-June is all on the website. Then we'll have our summer break, but we will come back in uh, mid-August. So we already have some bookings uh, set for August. So we're very excited about this series and hope that it'll be of great use to you. Uh, I do know that several people have been assigning it in classes. So if they're reading a particular book, they've assigned that, that book talk and even made general assignments you know, oh, you can pick which book talk you want to listen to and write about. Um, so we hope that this is, will be a resource um, for people in the future. So today we have Anne Claus, who is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at American University in the U.S. And she will be talking to us about her new book, Drawing the Sea Near, Satomi, and you're going to have to fix me on that one, and Coral Reef Conservation in Okinawa. So please, Anne, take it over. Thank you so much, uh, Dolly and Arnie. <clears throat> Obviously, I wish I could be in Norway with you, but I will take this Zoom conversation given the circumstances of the pandemic. Thank you so much for the invitation. Since so many of us are homebound these days, I thought I would show some photos to feed our wanderlust as I talk to you about uh, my book. So let's see if I can get those started here. Okay, can everyone see this? Yeah, okay, great. Let me just move this over, okay. Uh, so I wanted to begin today by talking about how I ended up writing this book. <clears throat> and to do that, I wanna quickly outline three sketches that also help to delineate my situated perspective on environmental conservation. And the first sketch chronologically is me as a graduate student 
reading work by anthropologists and journalists that really implicated transnational conservation organizations like the World Wildlife Fund and the Nature Conservancy and Conservation International. Uh, it, it really implicated them in violence, in displacement, in dispossession, in uh, a lot of unwanted cultural change. The second sketch is me as a staff member in the US office of a transnational conservation organization. And this was a job that I took so I could essentially infiltrate these organizations and get a better handle on how they work from a very different perspective. A lot of my work there involved transnational collaborations and many of those were in Mozambique. And I distinctly remember how the conditions that governed those collaborations made them unequal and infused with fraught, troubling post-colonial dynamics. The third sketch is me doing research for this book with the same organization, but this time in Okinawa. And there I found similar fraught dynamics, but I also found some productive transformations. And these transformations were contingent on very different cultural and historical conditions of conservation in Japan among other things. So this book really aims to do a few things. And one of them is to present an organizational ethnography of a transnational conservation organization. In this case, the organization is the World Wildlife Fund uh, as it's known in the US and Canada or the Worldwide Fund for Nature as it's known in the rest of the world. Here, I'm really interested in how these organizations change, what it is that enables them to transform their practices and what those changed practices look like through the lens of ethnography. So for these reasons, the book really focuses in on conservationists themselves. This research led me to the only remaining field station of the World Wildlife Fund in Japan, which is located in Western Okinawa on an island called Ishigaki. And a grassroots uh, decades-long movement to thwart an airport that would, was slated to be built on a coral reef there, originally brought the attention of WWF and other transnational conservation organizations to the region. This movement was ultimately successful in that the reef was quote-unquote saved, um, but this very small village of 1,600 people where the field station was eventually established in Ishigaki uh, occupies this uh, important place in Japanese narratives of environmentalism because of this movement. And I discuss that much more in the book, obviously, um, but uh, I'd be happy to talk more about that if you'd like. <clears throat> So this book makes some theoretical contributions to unpacking the underlying ideologies that we see in transnational conservation organizations like WWF. They're heavily influenced by US cultural ideas of what ideal nature is and how it should be tended to. And key concepts here are wilderness and protectionism. These underlying ideas have more often than not led to the alienation of people from places that they have traditionally been symbolically and materially attached to. So when we think of transnational conservation, it often invokes these images of sublime nature and exotic places. And we in the United States, at least, tend to think that those places should remain distanced from people. In the book, I argue that distancing is not just a result of protectionist policies, but it's a reflection of broader distancing logics that underlie their work. 
limiting and bounding sensorial encounters is a large part of how this distancing occurs. And uh, as well as the creation of what Katya Neves and Jim Igo would refer to as the conservation of spectacle. Nature really becomes something to see, not to touch or to taste or otherwise engage with. In contrast, in the book, I delineate a multisensorial approach that I saw evolving over time at the WWF field station. I call this kind of conservation, conservation near, and it's predicated on different kinds of relationships with surroundings. It's not about distancing, but rather it's about proximity, hence the title of the book, Drawing People, uh, Drawing the Sea Near, Drawing People Near. <clears throat> Here in this form of conservation, touch and taste and smell are viewed as primary ways in which nature affect forms. And the keywords here are close observation, play, patience. Conservation near nurtures an ecology of care, not in this paternalistic sense of needing to protect non-humans, but rather in a spirit of collaboration and curiosity that promotes a socio-natural uh, vitality. Of course, these uh, conservation near and far are heuristic devices and practices of transnational conservation organizations uh, exist on much more of a spectrum. But this is also one of the points of the book. I would say that our scholarly investigations thus far have been weighted heavily towards investigating conservation far, uh, which is incredibly important work. But there are also many other things happening within transnational conservation organizations. And the book points to some of those in order to take up the provocation of feminist scholars to conduct research towards alternate socio-ecological futures. The book also focuses in on some yosomono uh, outsiders and how they help to pave the way for these transformations and conservation practice. So we meet a man who could best be described as a coral restoration outlaw. We meet the director of the field station with uh, uh, the WWF field station with his unusual commitments to collaborative processes. We meet an expat who really helped redefine what Japanese conservation is for international as well as domestic audiences. Not all of these people work for WWF, but in their work, they too help conservation near to unfold. In order to analyze conservation and conservationists, I was privileged to spend a lot of time immersing myself in the sea and coral reefs. And anthropology, like many other disciplines, has largely been terracentric. Um, I've noticed uh, some of the other talks in this series have also focused on the ocean, which is a really wonderful development across the environmental humanities and social sciences. Um, but in a lot of the environmental anthropology work until now, uh, the ocean and other water worlds are really seen as a backdrop to the rest of life, um, not as a space that has significance for how people make meaning in their worlds. There are, of course, notable exceptions to this. Um, the work of Bonnie McKay, among others, comes to mind. Uh, and like I said, this is rapidly changing, which is wonderful. Now, if you look on Duke University Press, you can actually see ocean studies as a category that you can look under for books. Um, but uh, there definitely has been a, a lack of scholarship thinking about this before um, these, uh, I would say even the past five years. And in the book, I mentioned a quote by Roland Barthes, the French semiotician, 
about the ocean as being devoid of signs, reflecting this view of the ocean as a final frontier, as nature through and through without any evidence of culture. Of course, this isn't the case, but because of this lacuna, the ocean really becomes another character in the book. And it's presented mostly in interludes where I discuss the ideological, material and aesthetic connections of Okinawan Islanders to the sea. I also talk about the sea extensively in chapter two, and the chapter takes uh, readers from the Ocean Expo of 1975, which was held in Okinawa, up to contemporary meetings in which conservationists in Japan really seek to articulate this quote unquote Japanese approach to marine conservation. And there I discussed the Japanese term that's also in the title, Sato Umi, and how it became what anthropologists Sarabeski and Paige West, among others, would call a conservation imaginary. Sato umi is a Japanese word that's made up of two terms. Sato means village and umi means sea. A sato umi is a cultivated seascape that's actively produced by various human and non-human actors. Uh, as an anthropologist, of course, I love this term because it's essentially encultured nature or what some scholars would refer to as a socio-nature. Satomi is a process-oriented metaphor that bridges and transcends domains that function as opposites within a wilderness paradigm. Um, and this is, uh, it was significant for the development of conservation in uh, this field station um, for a number of reasons that I really talk about in the book, um, <clears throat> uh, in, including its uh, surge of interest in the term in the past decade because of its prominence in international meetings for the Convention on Biological Diversity that were held in Nagoya in 2010. So in chapter two, I really trace the rise of Satoumi and illustrate how it was actively shaped and reshaped into an idea that was readily identifiable to others as a viable conservation imaginary. And this nature ideal helped to legitimate the locally attuned culturally attuned approach of the field office of WBF um, in Ishigaki. The work at that field station was remarkably collaborative and culturally specific, and it built on local ideas of what constitutes coral reef culture, sango shobunka. At the field station, local desires and cultural considerations were seen as, uh, as significant as ecological ones. And so, you saw the development of not only ecological criteria, but also uh, social criteria for conservation there. In the book, I delineate how Satoumi as a conservation imaginary really enabled that work to unfold and, um, and helped it to transform from what originally were much more uh, like the distancing practices of conservation far. Um, and this transformation from those distancing practices to conservation near necessitated reflexivity about the projects of universalizing within which conservation science is oftentimes situated. It demanded a recentering of conservation practices around solidarity and social equity. And it compelled a reconsideration of the positionality of conservationists, as well as the hierarchies of knowledge within which environmental knowledge and environmental conservation are produced. These were ongoing projects far from complete, but their ongoingness does not make them any less compelling to consider. These commitments to conservation near at the field station, however, existed in tension with the work of the organization writ large. And this transformation uh, involved therefore both what David Moss would call acts of composition, 
and what I call acts of circumvention. Circumventions that uh, included sleights of hand, the creation of additional non-WBF organizations to shelter and support the work of Conservation Near, the garnering of support from external donors and sympathetic academics, among other things, uh, including me, um, I suppose. So these circumstances really raise a, question, a series of questions about how to create more lasting change in these massive transnational conservation networks. Something I would be happy to talk about more if that's of interest, that's a, a subject of my emerging research. Finally, I just want to say that I see this book as a work of public anthropology. I purposely wrote a book that's light on jargon so I could reach a wide interdisciplinary audience. So beyond writing for academics and students, the book also contributes to the work of many others who in, in their practices have attempted to change the practices of transnational conservation to make them more socially just. People like Janice Alcorn and Diane Russell, who have long argued that conservation will only be effective if it's decentralized and built on local understandings. I also see this work in alignment with attempts by feminist scholars to imagine and articulate alternative ways of doing and imagining conservation as development. Um, I guess I can end there. I haven't really spoken much about the individual chapters, but I'd be happy to talk more about uh, any of that with you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, also, thanks for those gorgeous pictures. Uh, I do like having the sea near, so it's also very good to, to see. Uh, and I thought we could perhaps start a bit with, uh, to kick off the discussion, I mean, I can just remind people that if you have uh, questions, just write it in the chat and I would call on you. Uh, but just to, to get us started then, these two concepts that you use, so the conservation near and conservation far, uh, developed then through looking at a Japanese case, uh, in a way, in the meeting between this international organization and local circumstances. Uh, so the question then is, are these then unique to Japan or are there other examples of similar meetings, I mean, in the West too, between these international organizations and local circumstances. So it's a general process or, or is it specific? I'm sure there are other examples. And I think you probably have a lot of examples of much more locally attuned conservation that comes out of these transnational organizations in Europe, for example. I would say, um, and I don't know about these because I haven't done research in any of the European WWF offices, but my sense is that uh, obviously um, given the uh, different cultural context in, in um, well, I think the only place that I really have any experience with is uh, in Germany, the German WWF. And um, the way that the German WWF interacted with the WWF office in Mozambique, for example, seemed um, uh, quite different than the way the US office did. But again, this is from my work experience, not really from my field work. So uh, I guess I can't really comment on that question, but I think it's a great question. And I'd like to see many more people researching the way that these organizations do work that is very culturally specific. Yep. Uh, agreed, I think that would be quite good. Uh, we have a question from uh, Sachiko. 
I have unmuted you. Yeah. Yes. Hello. Thank you so much for the the talk. Um, I just got a hold of your book, so I haven't. I just started reading the introduction, and I was like, oh, I definitely need to join this this seminar. Um, so I'm looking forward to reading more. But um, so I have two questions. I hope that's okay. So one is around the the outsider, the yosomono that you talked about. So I'm I'm doing a PhD. Um, based in Sweden, but my fieldwork is in Japan on um, two remote islands in Kyushu region. So one is Yakushima, one is in the Goto Islands um, off of Nagasaki. And so I'm, and my interest is in people who move to the countryside. So this is, this idea of the Yosomono, the outsiders really relevant for me. So I, I wondered if you could elaborate a little bit more how um, these outsiders played a role or if there were any uh, potential conflicts that was coming from this. And I would imagine Okinawa having uh, a little bit interesting dynamics around that. And the second question was related to what you said at the end about uh, writing for a wider audience. And this is something that I'm striving to do in my PhD. Um, so I was wondering if you had any general writing strategies or tips or um, even inspirations um, on this process. Great questions. Um, <clears throat> yes. So the first, uh, the first question about Yosomono. Um, I wonder if you've heard this saying in Japan. There's like a, I would say a popular theory about yosomono, um, yosomono, wakamono, bakamono, uh, outsiders, kids and crazies, they're all uniquely able to um, engender change. And the idea is that uh, all of these, you know, what do all of these three groups of people have in common? Well, they may be unable to read the air in a particular situation, they don't have the right interpretive skills that make them understand that they're unable to make the kind of change that they're hoping to. They may not care. Um, and uh, for these reasons, I think this idea that Yosomono are able to, uh, they also have an agenda and they are willing to push it forward. Apparently, um, this is how this is what the the theory goes. <clears throat> the theory says, at least. So, of course, there were very complicated dynamics around outsiders in Okinawa, and I discuss a lot of those dynamics in the book. And one thing that I think is interesting to think about is this idea of collaboration needing to have the same. Um, intense always. And I think Anna Singh talks about this in her book, Friction, where she talks about collaborations, where people are collaborating. They uh, have very different interpretations of events, even if the outcome is what each party was hoping to have unfold. And I saw that in my fieldwork as well. I saw projects unfolding, having, uh, you know, the intended outcome but the process along the way was interpreted very differently by different parties. And there didn't necessarily need to be commensurability in some of those, uh, in some of those processes to like have a out an outcome that people saw as, as useful or helpful. And so um, I found that to be really interesting. I talk about this in the book a little bit in the way that a clam restoration project was interpreted. I mean, one reason I see uh, Jonathan's question about an example of conservation near. One example of one of those projects is a clam restoration 
project that uh, was really one of the projects that animated many people in the village. And, um, you know, shifting from what WBF was hoping to originally do, which was to establish protected areas to protect this blue coral that people who lived there didn't really care that much about. Um, you know, they like the near shore area. They spend a lot of time cultivating seaweed, uh, gathering and harvesting shellfish and fish in the near shore sea. But the corals themselves aren't really a site for interest. And so the fact that this transnational organization came in and said, you need to protect these corals, they're the patrimony of the world, and uh, brought a lot of conflict to the region because of that, um, in fact, made people really resent the corals and not care about protecting them at all. And so whereas there may have been ambivalence before, there was some uh, animosity that ensued because of that. And in addition, the organization really fomented, uh, because of its presence, but also because of its activism, it really fomented divisions in the village. And so the way that, one way that they needed to come around to being a much more productive and positive force uh, on the island was to try and rebuild some of these community ties that they had themselves severed. Uh, I mean, not not of their, not in exclusively, but still they were played a huge part in a lot of that um, divisiveness. And so <clears throat> this clam restoration project was one way that uh, people started to take more interest in the work of the organization. And the um, islanders really had a taste for these clams that mainlanders don't really eat. Um, they're bright colored and uh, in ways that, you know, mainland seafoods that people really appreciate don't have these bright blues or purples or other hues that, um, that tropical seafoods tend to have. And so these these clams that people really wanted to eat more of. Um, this is a project that was developed by WWF. It wasn't seen necessarily as an important project by the main office in Tokyo, but it was something that many villagers actually cared about. And one thing that they cared about was that mainlanders don't really care about these clams. They don't have a taste for them. They don't understand the cultural associations with them. And so it was something that they also liked because mainlanders don't really understand it. And the organization itself didn't really care about those things. And so some of those tensions, you see them playing out in these ways uh, in projects like those that are able to animate people around conservation questions and conservation problems, but not necessarily in the ways that everyone expected that they would or understood them to be doing. Yeah, so what it comes down to then is, is this uh, conservation nearest about making uh, it relevant then for the, the locals, or I mean, enrolling the stakeholders as, as one might also say. Yes, as a conservationist would definitely say that. Yeah, is yeah, yeah. And, and there was the other question um, about how to write. So do you have, yeah, when you say that you're writing for the general audience, what does that mean in, in practice? I mean, you mentioned less jargon than might be expected from an anthropologist writing. Um, do you have other kind of ways of doing it, of putting it into practice? I actually wrote a very short piece about this because when I was finishing my dissertation, I actually took a writing class and I was discouraged from taking it. 
by both of my advisors actually. And um, I snuck into it anyway. And to me, one of the most important things that I learned in that class was that, you know, we have all sorts of citational practices. We have a lot of writing um, ticks as academics that we kind of feel like we have to engage in because we need to signal our expertise in ways that are understandable and legible to our academic audiences. Uh, but this tends to make our writing very stiff and formal. And the writing professor was on the, is on the editorial board of the New York Times and is a wonderful writer and has written a lot about writing. Um, he suggested we just take off our cap and gown and sit down and write as if we were writing other kinds of writing. Why not write your book as if you're writing a letter to a friend or a blog post, for example. And some of those conventions are things that we can't get away from because of what our, you know, the people who help give us job security are requiring us to do. But others of them, I think that we can step away from. So I've seen, you know, there's a, a, there's a lot of really wonderful work in anthropology that is very well written um, by scholars like Kirin Narayan, for example, is one name that comes immediately to mind. Marjorie Wolf, of course, is an amazing writer. She's passed away, but um, there are examples of scholarship that is readable. Something you know that I would give to my mom, who's very well educated, but not an anthropologist and would not read a lot of anthropology books. So I encourage you to do that. I think it's a wonderful idea and sneak into a writing class. Yeah, this, that's so um, relevant in that when I submitted my book proposal um, to MIT Press, the response from the editor was exactly that, was, can you write it more like you do your blog posts? Mm -hmm. And it took me, it took me a while to actually figure out what that meant, but I, you know, hopefully got there. And, and that's exactly the same process, which is to realize that you don't have to have a particular kind of, um, of authoritative voice that's, I mean, you're still authoritative, but without having that same kind of, I guess, writing style construction of the sentences um, that you would otherwise. Yeah. It's of course a challenging genre when you do this for the dissertation as you know, where this question came up, where you're supposed to also demonstrate the mastery of all these things. But I think we, we started to see more and more examples of people who are also you know, pushing the conventions there in ways to make it uh, more legible and more interesting too. So we have a question then from Sarah. Yes, hi. Um, thank you for a wonderful presentation and a wonderful book. I did have the chance to read it and I uh, enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's funny actually that this question before because for me the the most, um, what impressed me the most was the sharp analysis of what is going on, but then without constantly referring to the theorists and the and, and scholars in the field, while it's, it's more like an echo, it's really clear um, that it is there, but not literally. So um, I really had the feeling it's a really, really good contribution to the field, but also just a really good piece of ethnography. So really well done. Um, I also have two questions, um, if time allows me. First one is that I noticed while reading that you speak a lot about um, uh, local customs and local traditions and the local population, but that you refrain from using the term global. Um, it's always transnational. And of course the global is a very layered and complex term. Um, 
thinking about skill, but also just relationships and, and paradigms around it. So um, I was curious about your considerations around it, but then also the question, so how do you understand the local there if the, the global is left out of the debate? Um, second question considers um, the structure of the book, actually, because the first five chapters um, discuss the World Wildlife Fund. And then in the sixth, chap sixth chapter, you uh, introduce a new case study and this commercial company of um, uh, coral restoration that um, is mainly targeted to, to Japanese tourists. So it's a really different case. And you, you present this as an um, example of scientific pluralism. And of course, this was also mentioned in an earlier published uh, article. So I do follow the arguments how, um, how kind of even commercial companies can uh, foster really meaningful human uh, nature relationships, even outside of kind of like traditional environmentalism. Um, but here it's very much presented, yeah, as a case of scientific pluralism. And as you mentioned before, actually local population does not care so much only about the corals, but kind of the whole spectrum. And so I was wondering how you, how you see this kind of in the bigger uh, arguments of the book. Thank you. Great, those are both really good questions. <clears throat> um, transnational versus global. I mean, the main uh, impetus for me using transnational as the, the leading term in this book was actually si Simon Avenel's book, The Environmental Historian Who Writes About the Environmental Movement in Japan. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it before. Um, but yeah, I mean, even the use of local is pretty uh, complicated and fraught, and it was hard for me to make that decision to say, uh, yes, these are how we define local practices. And this is one reason why I actually shy away from doing that definitively in the book. I mean, I talk in the introduction about how the interludes are presenting various Okinawan views of the sea. Um, I don't think that there is some unified Okinawan view of the sea. You know, the fishers who work on the oceans have very different perspectives of, of how the sea is meaningful to them than people who are primarily agriculturalists or who grew up in urban environments. And you see a lot of that diversity even uh, on Ishigaki Island uh, itself. So to me, like I was trying to kind of slip out of having to define local by saying that um, in the introduction and, and just presenting some various views um, as they were presented to me by a big variety of, of villagers, um, mostly who uh, live in the village where WWF was established. So what you see in the interludes is really um, perspectives that are multi-generational as well as across a variety of, of occupations. And I think you see a lot of diversity in that. I would love to write a book about that in and of itself, but that's not this book. This book is an ethnography of transnational conservation organizations. Um, yeah, the last chapter, it's interesting uh, that, um, uh, I like that question <laughs> of how commercial companies can really exist within the same space of presenting conservation near. To me, that's what's happening here. It's a vernacular presentation of uh, investment in corals and how people develop affect for corals. And you see actually similarly, multi-sensorial approaches to developing conservation affect, even though it's through the guise of this private company. 
that has been developed by an Okinawan. And I think that this is a really interesting case because it exists in the same space as the field stations work, but is legitimated uh, by a very different group of people, right? You don't see natural scientists saying that this is a legitimate project, even though it does many of the things that the field station does. And you actually see uh, pretty strong attempts to delegitimize the proprietor of this company. And so another reason that I thought this was an important introduction or an important chapter to introduce to the book is to demonstrate how Okinawans are still seen in very similar ways um, as they were decades ago when they were seen as these people who needed to be essentially developed by the more modern mainlanders. So you see these problems surfacing in ways that um, you see reverberating in many other kinds of conservation uh, initiatives around the world. So uh, I also didn't want to present this idea that this is a, a perfect idyllic kind of conservation that has developed in Okinawa. There are still a lot of challenges and the ways that Okinawans are viewed by mainlanders continue to be problematic as well. All right, so we have two comments or a question and comment on the, the concept of Satomi. Um, first, some enthusiasm for Christine, who talks about how it would have helped her with her first book, um, where she used regulated commons as a somewhat uh, related concept um, to discuss then the uh, oyster fisheries in the Maryland uh, Chesapeake area. Uh, and then related to that, Susan had a question about uh, Satoma in practice, if you could give us an ethnographic vignette. Yeah, so satomi is a really, like I said, I love this term as an anthropologist because it is in cultured nature. Um, and an easy way to understand it is to correlate it with the terrestrial component, uh, the terrestrial term, which is satoyama, uh, refers to um, mountain spaces really. And so the, the space between a village and the deep mountain, um, that interstitial space, that zone where humans and animals are really creating, co-creating that space, that's considered to be the satoyama and the same could be said for satoumi. So mostly this refers in Okinawa at least to these near shore areas where you see different kinds of projects develop. And satoumi has been, uh, both satoumi and satoyama have been promoted by the United Nations University as really important terms in Okinawa. And again, the holding of the Convention on Biological Diversity meetings in Nagoya in 2010 played a huge role in finding some terms that could help define and delineate what conservation in Japan looked like to international audiences. So for those meetings, um, a group of case studies were brought together and things like um, oysters were actually discussed. So one example of uh, a Satoumi project that was defined by the UN University was uh, farmers in, in the Notohanto and in the, in the mainland Japan, uh, where there's the peninsula that kind of sticks out there. Um, <clears throat> the farmers were uh, breaking the law essentially by using oyster shells to fertilize their land. And so re, uh, refiguring policy so that they could do that, that was declared as some form of satoumi by the UN University. In Okinawa, the interpretation of satoumi 
uh, at least in this space, has really been the inkachi, which is a traditional fish weir. It, it uses the tides really. So um, it's like a stone wall in the near shore sea. And when the tide goes out, then fish remain there. And then you can take the fish out. But if you don't eat them, then they can escape through a trap. So it's seen as some sort of form of sustainable fishing. And this technology has um, fallen out of favor because there are much more efficient ways to catch fish. But um, there was a restoration project of one of these tidal weirs on the near shore sea. And this is um, become the poster child for Satoumi in Okinawa. There were a couple of conferences that were organized around this uh, using a graphic of this tidal weir um, to represent what Satoumi is in Okinawa. So these kinds of projects that attempt to demonstrate um, how there can be sustainable, uh, sustainable interactions with the seascape, um, but still fall within this kind of uh, technocratic sometimes uh, understanding of natural resource management in the sea tend to be uh, delineated as these Satomi projects. So they look very different across the entire archipelago. And looking at the diversity in them is kind of interesting. I talked to actually the third, the second chapter in the book that goes really into in uh, way too much detail about this for most people's liking, I'm sure, talks about how different people actually understood this term, especially those who were involved in kind of promoting it and using it um, to help define what Japanese conservation looked like. And, uh, and some of them really saw this diversity and in interpretation to be one of the main strengths of the term. You don't have to say Satomi is this. It can be a lot of things. You can find it all around the world. And the person who originally coined the term of Satoumi, um, you know, is incredibly excited. I went to some conference that he organized in uh, in mainland Japan at some point, and his opening presentation was just showing random web pages uh, that had illustrations of people using the term satoumi, one from Spain, one from, you know, here or there, and it, it, it didn't have any meaning. It was kind of nonsensical, um, but he really liked that. He wanted it to be a term that people saw a lot of meaning in regardless of where they were. So, so this, this concept then made me think uh, also about the set of words you used, uh, uncultured nature. Uh, and I think they're getting in a way to the core of what we do in environmental humanities. But I'm wondering, is it uncultured nature or is it unnatured culture? Is it neither? Is it both? Does it matter? Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, that's interesting. So... <clears throat> I think about this sometimes when I think about collaboration, right? Like, does it need to be equal? Is there some kind of way that we can say this is more one or the other and this one is appropriate? Um, I don't know. I mean, to me, I think Satomi has a lot of promise as a term. I love that this idea can be brought into policy on a national level and it's something that can be promoted and, um, you know, in very different iterations, because I think conservation should look different everywhere. Um, so I, I see a lot of promise in its malleability, but there is a very technocratic side of it. And it's, it's um, you know, the original term developed because 
of uh, a natural scientist who wanted to see more productive inland seas. And it was seen as this, you know, he initially envisioned building these massive machines in the nearshore sea on mainland Japan to help nutrient cycling so that there could be more fish produced. And so seeing how this concept has traveled from that idea, which is very much about making nature more productive and doesn't really have anything to do with the cultural associations with the sea to something that is, you know, in, in Ishigaki is this tidal weir that has all sorts of cultural significance and doesn't have any kind of technical, uh, you know, like the natural resource output of this tidal weir is minimal at best. Fishers would not use that technology anymore because it's obsolete. And so seeing how this concept has really changed and is interpreted differently, um, not only in locations, but across time uh, is I think really interesting. I'm not really answering your question. I'd like to actually see what you have to say to that question. <laughs> <laughs> nice move, throwing it back. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's fascinating in the environmental humanities how so many people try to find this hybrid words because yeah, nature culture yeah. right as one smashed together word um as being one example of that so how yeah you know we're, we're consistently playing with that um how do you break down the boundary but still keep the boundary because in some i mean because there are differences as much as we want to talk about multi-species worlds and you know, cohabitation and co-production and co-creation. Um, it's not all even. Um, and in different cases, yeah, as you point out, it may have a different emphasis. Um, so it's it's an ongoing struggle, not something I think we can just answer, if you will. Yeah. We have a question from Matthew. Uh, yeah, hi, can you hear me? I can hear you. Hi, Matthew. Um, I, it's it's nice to hear um, sort of a, a WWF or one of these transnational conservation efforts sort of being smiled upon instead of frowned upon. Hmm. Uh, and I was just reading today actually this paper by um, uh, Britt Crow and Judith Carney where they're talking about a sort of WWF um, project in the Gambia on mangrove conservation and how they sort of they sort of co-opt this. Uh, local knowledge that women have collected on like how to how to grow clams and stuff um and by trying to commercialize these oyster farms they're they're undermining a lot of what they're trying to do and i feel like that's quite a common theme um in this literature and i was wondering uh is there something about japan sort of also being like uh uh quite industrialized country or I was reading I, I I haven't read the book yet because I've been I'm subject to post Nord's very slow delivery times in Copenhagen lately um so I still don't have the physical copy but I, I noticed on the bank that Dan Brockington said that it was interesting case of sort of decolonizing conservation and I don't really think of I don't really think of Japan so much as like an obvious site of decolonization in the same way that a lot of places aren't necessarily so I was just wondering about about that and sort of yeah does that does that sort of change the dynamic of an organization like the WWF versus sort of the WWF thing going into the Gambia for instance yeah great question Matthew um for sure and I think one of the main uh 
One of the main enabling factors of different forms of conservation in Japan is a strong sense of resource rights for locals out in Japan. Like, you know, long before most countries in the West were thinking about the sea as a space for property rights, for example, in Japan, they had developed these extensive arrangements and, and ways of understanding the ocean as property. And so WWF is walking into this situation in which local villagers are seen as having rights that they're unable to take away um, in spite of their efforts to do so, right? I mean, they tried to establish protected areas in, in ways that would uh, change the rights landscape that are <clears throat> that were ineffective essentially. And so definitely those power dynamics make a big difference. Um, I'm not sure that there are a lot of instances of this kind of more locally. Well, there are a couple of things that made this conservation project, um, these conservation projects in Ishigaki perform differently. One of them was that the director of the center uh, cared a lot about local rights and he cared a lot about collaborative conservation. He had a background in um, in urban planning, which is essentially, you know, situated somewhere between social science and development studies. And so his whole approach was very different from the approach that you see in many WBF offices, where a lot of the people who work there are um, natural scientists, or they're trained to ask more about natural science considerations than other kinds of considerations. And so his whole approach was much more collaborative from the start. And, um, and again, like the the first director of the center uh, was not that in a lot of ways. And so he did a lot of damage and perpetrated um, some, uh, essentially made uh, it very difficult for the center to do any productive work there uh, with that approach. And so uh, it's not surprising to me to see negative press about the organization writ large. I think there's been a lot of very negative press lately um, over the past two years because WBF has been implicated in uh, torture and potentially murder uh, from guards in different uh, of their locations around the world. And so um, to me, uh, asking these questions in Japan was possible because of the historical and cultural landscape of conservation there, which is quite different than what you see in the Gambia, I'm sure. Yeah, that's, um, uh, I, I think what your example shows though is how important it is to have people with the humanities and social sciences also in these roles um, where there are people who seriously think about people and how people work and not just how ecosystems work on, on a technical um, level. So what I was wondering, in listening to the kinds of projects that they were doing, it sounded to me like a lot of these were restoration projects. Um, rather than just conservation projects, in other words, you weren't just holding on to what you have, but you were trying to bring back something that's been lost. And so I was wondering if you had any comments about that. So is, is it different or might you envision it as different if it's a restoration versus you know, a conservation? And how did they talk about that in this particular case and the Sato Umi um, you know, working within that context? 
I sense that this question is coming from an expert in rewilding. So I'm really curious actually to know what, what your response would be to that question. Um, yeah, I mean, restoration and conservation were seen as very different by the people who uh, ran this field station and by the people who work in the Tokyo office for sure. Um, but I guess the question is whether they were considered to be that way from uh, the perspective of islanders. Um, yeah, I don't know. I have to actually think about that a little bit more. Um, I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, I was, I, I lost it now. I had actually something, as you started talking, I was um, going to say something else about that, but I forgot. Anyway, go ahead. Is, is, are there any other questions? Doesn't look like there's any in the chat. I mean, if anyone has one, they should let us know right away. Uh, otherwise, we'll start wrapping up because we're getting close to the end of our time. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a really, it's, I mean, it's a really interesting case to think about the ways in which you make these kind of projects local and the problems that come with that, the problems of thinking about them yeah, from this outside perspective, from the inside perspective, but it's also not just all rosy um, and happy to go with some kind of local solution. That's also not it, right? Um, but the complexity of this kind of intervention um, is really important to, to consider. And the dynamics involved in that, both from the ecosystem and from the people, right, of these kind of interventions. Actually, I remember now what I was going to say. I was going to talk about my new project, which is thinking about change in these organizations a little bit more uh, from a different perspective. Again, um, I'm, I have a couple of articles under review right now that are looking at specifically social scientists within transnational conservation organizations and the ways that they are attempting to enact larger change within the organizations themselves. And I see it, you know, it was really important to me, I think that um, as someone who worked for a couple of years as a social scientist in, in these in one of these organizations uh, and was definitely marginalized. <laughs> and there were not, uh, there wasn't a appreciation for or understanding of how social science was absolutely critical to enacting good conservation projects. Um, I saw that the, the director at this center because of his training just was able to, to be in that space in, in very different, very productive ways. Um, but, but social scientists still are marginalized in these organizations. So how are they attempting to enact change and how do they, um, what kinds of practices that their organizations uh, do help enable them to make broader change? Uh, it's a critically important question, I think, for the, the future of conservation writ large. I know that's a bold thing to say about uh, very, very diverse kinds of practices, but it seems very true. All right, so we should wrap up then. Uh, so I just want to thank Anne for uh, participating here and also all the, the people in the audience for good questions and engagement uh, in this you know, one year anniversary uh, Greenhouse Environmental Humanities book talk. Uh, I'm pretty sure it'll be a second anniversary, but I hope the second year will be in approaching more normal times. Uh, so we keep the good parts, which is these book talks. Uh, and yeah, the rest we can try to get past. So, but thank you all for coming uh, and uh, hope to see you again. Thank you so much, everyone. I really appreciated your questions. <clears throat>